Our sermon this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. And if you don't have a Bible, it would be helpful for you to follow along. So there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, page 575. And, of course, we'd encourage you to have your Bibles open every sermon, but this one in particular, just trying to understand what's happening. It's helpful for you to see it and, and not just hear me say it. So as you turn there, I want to say thank you for your words of encouragement to the birth of my first grandchild, a grandson. Yes. I, I had so much to do with it. So proud I made it through. Daniel Paul Phillips, Tuesday, 9-15. And I really was tempted to just have a slideshow today of him. Uh, I only have a few thousand pictures of his first few days. Uh, but I'll, we'll send something out, and most of you probably have seen it on social media somewhere. But we're really here to consider uh, a more important birth. And I don't know if you've held a child at Christmas, especially if it's connected to you as a parent or a grandparent, maybe an aunt or an uncle, but but when you hold a child who's just a, a few minutes old, there's some measure of hope that you feel. Something like, hey, there's there's a chance for good things to carry forward. There's all kinds of emotions, but that was one of the ones that came to my mind, and I thought, how much more for Mary and Joseph? How much more for shepherds to see this baby and think, gosh, what, there's hope. I mean, we know something about this child already, and we have great hope. And so it's a season of, of great hope. And when we look at the book of Isaiah, we're looking at uh, what he was saying. He was waiting for this great hope. And one of the difficulties of looking at a book of prophecy like the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah just moves across the page as he's writing, but he's also moving through time. And he doesn't tell you, okay, this is a different piece of time. He just writes it, and when you read it, you, you get confused pretty easily. That's why it's hard just to read through one of these books without any kind of reference. And I thought I would tell you something that was helpful to me when I heard it, in the way that we read this, especially a, a prophecy book. You've got to imagine like reading it uh, like you would see the Blue Ridge Parkway. So imagine you're driving up I-40 and you come to maybe Hickory, North Carolina or somewhere around there, and you get a good shot of the beautiful, big, beautiful blue Blue Ridge Mountains. Most of you probably had that, that, that in your mind. And you see it, and from some distance, it all looks like just one big wall of mountains. But then as you get closer, you realize, hey, some mountains are closer, and there's valleys in between, and then there's another mountain or two, and then there's more valleys, and then there's another mountain. But from a distance, like Isaiah, it all looks like one mountain. But as you get closer, you realize there's space in between these mountains, and that's exactly how you should read Isaiah. He's going to tell you some things that are near, nearer mountains. But he doesn't give a time reference, but then he's going to tell you something that's a farther mountain away. 
And we had this last week, but you can see it again here just in this week. In uh, chapter 10, verse 34, God's going to cut down a forest with an axe. This is a reference to Assyria, the bad guys who have come in to invade. And God's saying, I'm going to cut them down with an axe. And then verse uh, chapter 11, verse 1, then there shall come forth a shoot from one of these stumps. And when you read it, it just feels like, well, one happens on a Monday and then the next one happens on a Tuesday. But there's 700 years between those two verses. And if you don't know that, it gets very confusing. And so I, I want us to be mindful of that. And I'll point a few of those places out as we go through. And so you can just remain seated. I'm going to read these 10 verses. And then I'm going to read three other verses that you might want to just jot down that uh, the New Testament writers reference out of this particular chapter. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity from the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances. But judge with right judgment. These are referenced from Isaiah in the New Testament. Second Thessalonians two eight. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And then the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation twenty two, sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word.
I wanted to also uh, note that after the service, I'll stay up here, and if somebody needs to be prayed for, I'll be here. Probably another elder will join me, and maybe something about the sermon, maybe just be something about the season of feeling like you're waiting and you need somebody to to pray with you in order to wait patiently. And I'll say that again at the end of the service. Each week during this season of Advent, these four weeks that we celebrate the, the coming, that's what Advent means in Latin, of Christ, we're, we're taking time to look at the book of Isaiah, which was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. But there are a lot of references, not only to the birth of Christ, but the life and the death of Christ in Isaiah. And so we look back and say all these references to who Jesus is. He's this shoot of Jesse. He's the the root of David. As Christians, we believe Isaiah, whether he really saw how Jesus was coming or not is another question, but he he was prophesying. He was making a reference to there will be a day when a new king comes. And of course, that that coming was 700 years in the making for Isaiah. But we look back and we examine these texts because they tell us something about Jesus and help us stand in awe of him. And so I want to make four main points this morning. First of all, the character that's required to come to Christ. What, what, what's the condition or character needed in your own heart in order to come to this new king? Number two, what is the character of the king, the character of Christ? And we'll see that in verses 2 through 5. The third thing, the consummation or the perfect ending of Christ's rule. So he's going to come and then there's going to be a consummation. There's going to be a perfect ending. And then finally, a call for all people to come. So, so the characters required by us to come to Christ, the, the character of Christ, the consummation of his coming... And then the call for all people to come. All right, number one, the character required to come to Christ. Now, just a a little bit of background is necessary. Isaiah lived in the capital city of Judah. It's called Jerusalem. It's interesting, just this week, still battle over, is Jerusalem the capital city? So very interesting just in our day. But Jeremiah uh, or Isaiah, he lived in Jerusalem. And he lived or prophesied, he was the, the, the person who was listening to God on behalf of the people of God. He lived when there was a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz, during his reign, felt threatened by the northern kingdoms coming down on him. He felt like he was going to be invaded. And I love the, the way you get a feel for Ahaz's emotional temperature. Chapter 7, verse 2 the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before a great wind. Isn't that a great description? So here's the condition of the heart of Ahaz and his people. They're shaking. They're they're small. They're insignificant. And they feel this pressure coming down on them. And they're wondering if God's going to save them. But Ahaz, he doesn't have a heart that trusts the Lord. And so what he tries to do is he tries to form a strategic alliance with a superpower. And you just might imagine this in in geopolitical world today. If you're a small little country, if you can get a bigger country to get on your side, then you have more hope of winning the battle. 
And so there's this big gorilla called Assyria, and they say, hey, if you can come and help us defeat our enemies, we'll submit to you. We'll give you things. If you can save us from invasion, we'll give you things. We'll submit to you. And so they make a strategic partnership with Assyria. But Isaiah comes in as the voice of the Lord and tells the king, don't form this alliance with the world. You're you're trying to fight worldly battles with worldly powers, and that's not going to work. You've got to form an alliance or keep an alliance with the Lord. Don't, don't lean on the world's power. They, they may provide some temporary relief, but this is what Isaiah t- tells Ahaz. He tells Ahaz, what's going to happen is when they come in and invade your northern neighbors, they're going to spill over into your town as well. Don't think they're going to stop at your border. This is a hungry beast, and they're going to come in, and they're going to devour you as well. Chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. This is how Isaiah tells this to Ahaz. The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria. But it will rise over its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on and even reach to your neck. Do you hear what he's saying? You, you've partnered with this big superpower, but when they come in, when you partner with the world, it doesn't stay in its channel. It's going to overflow. It's going to consume you. It's going to reach around your neck, just like sin does. You partner with power from the world. You partner with sinful things of the world thinking, this is going to provide some kind of temporary relief. This is going to relieve my current pain or frustration. But as soon as you partner with it, it starts spilling over your banks. It doesn't stay in its channel. It actually consumes you, this thing that you've partnered with. But unfortunately, Ahaz doesn't listen to Isaiah. Instead, he leans on Assyria, and he is eventually devoured. Thankfully, God is faithful even in the midst of disobedience. And he says, and we read this before, chapter 10, verse 34, he will cut down these Assyrians. They've come in with great pride and destruction, and God says, I I know you think these people are a super superpower, but from God's perspective, he's going to cut them down like an axe cuts down a forest. And then we we read the character that's required to come back to Christ or come to God. Chapter 10, verse 20. Look at that with me. In that day, a remnant of Israel... And the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer, will no more lean on him who struck them down. See, they were leaning on Assyria, but they're going to come back and they're not going to be leaning on the world power anymore. But they will, what will they do? They will lean on the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. They're going to lean on the name of God, the Holy One of Israel in truth. 
So one of the first characteristics in coming to God is to, to stop your leaning on the world. I'm done hoping the world is going to fill my heart, is going to satisfy all of my hopes. I'm putting all my weight now on the Holy One. I'm putting all my weight on God. I'm not going to lean on the world anymore. No more strategic partnerships with the world. And then verse 21, the remnant will return. Key word, return, or same, same word that you might use for repent. I was going in a certain direction, and I was leaning or hoping or grabbing for the world. And now in order to come back, I've got to return. I've got to turn away from those things. I've got to stop leaning on those things. And I've got to move towards God, the one who is the mighty God. And so my question here for us is, is there anyone here out of anxiety or pressure or fear, or the need to be in control, forming right now a strategic partnership with the world, hoping it's going to satisfy. Alcohol, academics, or appearance. Money, marriage, or motherhood. Shopping, sex, or social media. Power, popularity, or Prozac. If you make any of those things the things that are going to relieve pressure, they're going to temporarily give you hope, they're going to devour you, Isaiah says. It looks like they're going to help for a moment, and maybe for a moment they seem satisfactory, but they end up just swallowing you up. And so is there anyone here that feels, I'm being devoured right now by the thing I've put my hope in? Then hear Isaiah, return. Stop leaning on those things and trust in God as you wait on him. Number two, the character of Christ. So, so we're returning. Who are we turning to? Who is this new king? What is his character? And we see it uh, mostly here in these first chapters. When they finally return, the, the, the topography of their life doesn't look very good. It looks like a bunch of stumps. I wonder if, if you had a little picture of the topography of your own heart, what it looked like. Would it just look like a bunch of stumps? Because you've been leaning on the world and it's devoured you. But God says there's hope. There's hope. Chapter 11, verse 1. It doesn't look like much at first. One person wrote a sermon and said, here's the first Christmas tree, a shoot from a stump. I mean, it's not very pretty. It's not very big, but there's hope. Somebody's coming. This great language of shoots coming out of the stump. It's small, maybe like a baby in a manger. And, of course, this is a reference to Jesus. Jesse was the father of David, King David, the one in 2 Samuel chapter 7, who had been promised by God, there will be a king that comes from your line that will stay on the throne forever. And we know that is Jesus. 
And so we're promised this coming king, and we're not quite sure his character yet, but we know he's coming out of Jesse. He's coming out of the line of David. And let me just stop right here and point out this mountain range. It might be hard to see. Number one, God is going to chop down Assyria in Isaiah's lifetime. All right, so, so when Isaiah says that, he knows that's going to happen. That's a near mountain then this remnant is going to return. When is that? That's 140 years later after Isaiah's death. And then when is this shoot going to come? 700 years later. Do you see that? If you don't know it, you just go, I don't know. This is why you give up reading your Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Say, I'm, I'm good in Philippians. I'm good in John. But, man, I get to Isaiah we just have to understand that Isaiah sees some things from the beginning here. He's, he is going to chop down Assyria. A remnant will return. That's 140 years after Isaiah's death. And then this shoot's going to come up. That's 700 years later. Now, Isaiah chapter 11, 2 through 5, mentions some of these characteristics. Let's just look at them. First of all, the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon this shoot. And it's going, to be, it's going to give him wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge. Verse 3, his delight is going to be in the fear of the Lord. He's not going to judge by what he sees or what he hears, but he's going to, he's going to judge in righteousness. He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The words of God are going to level the earth. And righteousness shall be his belt. You can think of uh, Ephesians chapter 6 on that. Faithfulness. Now, this would be a whole sermon just talking about these characteristics. And I just have time to focus on one. So I want to look at that. Verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight, he's going to delight in the fear of the Lord. What's the beginning of all wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And, and, and contrary to, to what we might think, he delights in being in awe of God. He longs to be in awe of God. And, and, and he's so caught up in uh, the appearance of God that, that the way the world operates by what you see, appearances, or by impressive speakers, he doesn't hear or see any of that. He's completely focused on God. And because he's completely focused on God, he can rule in righteousness. Now, this is in complete contrast to the Corinthians that we'll get back to. Remember them? Totally impressed by the world. Paul goes away and they go, wow, some powerful speakers came in and we just listened to them. And we're just saying, no, we're not doing it the world's way. This new king comes in. His total focus is on the Lord. And therefore, he makes right or righteous judgments. And I just stopped here and thought, I long for this kind of king. Because we live in a culture whose political class is absolutely enamored with themselves. And it is so painful to watch every time you turn on the news. Everything's a political calculation about themselves. And I want a king whose, whose all calculations is based on the righteousness of God. And that's the king that we're coming to. And he's going to judge the poor and the meek. 
He's going to judge in righteousness. See, he's not worried about the power of the world. He's not worried about the appearances of the world, all the kinds of things that might capture our heart. He's going to rule in righteousness. That's the king that we're coming to. Unfortunately, Ahab, or Ahaz, he, he lived in fear of man. He looked and saw these enemies coming towards him. He didn't feel like he was strong enough to fight against them. So he, he made a political alliance with a, even a bigger enemy. And he got devoured. He, he, he saw something coming by that he thought he could get into and say, this is going to save me. And then he realized, it's not going to save me. It's going to devour me. Now, I don't know why this song reference came into my mind, and only about 10 people will know it. Uh, And you have to be a child of the 80s to know this song. But there was kind of a haunting song by a girl named Tracy Chapman in the 80s. You got a fast car. So it was a great song because it was somebody who was in a difficult, dark place, and they're looking to get away. And somebody comes along You've got a fast car, and what's, what's her line? I want a ticket to anywhere. I'm so miserable where I am. You've got a flashy car. I'll take a ticket to anywhere you want to go. Maybe we can make a deal. The end of the song. I'd always hope for better. Take your fast car, keep on driving. I wonder if that describes anybody here. So unhappy, so anxious, so pressure-filled, so uncertain, so out of control that the fast car comes by and I say, I'll take a ticket to anywhere you're going. And in the beginning, it looks like they're going to have a hope, but, but I'd hope for more. And you know what? You can just take that fast car and go anywhere else. Because you drove me to the same place I lived in. That's what sin, that's what the world does. But there's a Savior, there's a King who takes you to a different place. But his car doesn't look flashy. It looks like a, a little root coming out of a stump. And that's what you have to hope in. That's what's difficult about faith. Is you got to put your faith, you got to quit leaning on the things that are right there and that are flashy and loud and sound great and say, I'm going to put all my faith in this little stump and that's going to take me home. For Ahaz, people were big and God was small. And so he made bad decisions. Ed Welch actually wrote a book with that title, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Listen to what he says. The fear of man wields awesome power. The praise of others, that that wisp of a breeze that lasts for a moment, can seem more glorious than the praise of God. Teenagers are constantly making unwise decisions because of it. Adults, too, look to people for their cues We spend too much time wondering what others may have thought about our outfit or our comment during a conversation. People become idols because we perceive that they have power to give us something. And what's the result of all this 
Idolatry, listen closely. The idol we choose to worship soon owns us. People become huge and they rule over us and they tell us how to think, what to feel, how to act, what to wear, and that we must laugh at every dirty joke. Yet the whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our desires actually leaves us enslaved to them. And that's what happened. Isaiah gets, or Ahaz, he gets enslaved to the world. And he doesn't see the, the kind of character of this coming king that Isaiah talks to us about. So I just wonder if you're done leaning on the world and you're ready to have both feet on the king. The king who is trustworthy. The king who has all of his focus on the Lord. Or are you still living in the shadow of the fear of man? Now, I want to reference here John chapter 7, verse 24, because Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, picks up a phrase out of Isaiah 11. And he says to his disciples, don't judge by appearances. See, he knows it. He knows the scripture. He knows how we're, we're wired to just judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. So, in other words, Jesus takes the prophecy spoken about him and he applies it to those people who are following after him. Do you see that? This prophecy is about me. I'm going to Jesus. I'm going to not worry about appearances. I'm not going to worry about power or how people speak. And now as you as followers, you do the same thing. Don't be enamored by people's appearance or people's pocketbook or people's ability to speak. Be enamored if they live in the fear of the Lord and make right judgments. Let me stop here. It's hard to do because you get in a roll and you've got to stop. And I want to point out another mountain range. Verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and kill the wicked. He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and kill the wicked. So when is this going to happen? It didn't happen in the first coming. He came, but he didn't come to judge, he came to open a way for us to have a relationship with God. This comes at his second coming, Second Thessalonians 2.8. Paul says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, this is Satan, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. So you see what's happening here? So this is a mountain that's still in front of us. Right? Jesus is going to come. We've lived over that mountain. Now we're in between. And there's still a mountain that's on our horizon. We don't know how far away it is. But when he comes back, he's going to judge and he's going to kill the wicked. So we're, in, we're inside the mountain range here of Isaiah chapter 1 or chapter 11, these first five verses. But when you read through it, there's just no hint of time here. That's what makes it difficult. Number three, the consummation, got to say something briefly about here, the consummation or the perfect ending 
of Christ's rule. You see the, the description, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Here's the, the final mountain range, I think, in Isaiah's view. It's, it's when Jesus is going to come again and all the earth, verse 9, all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. We're certainly not at that place right now. And notice the, the great language he uses. The wolf is going to lie down with the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the cobra and the child, the lion and the cow. It's, it's all these pairings of people or parties who wouldn't normally get together. And Bible scholars are divided here as to say, is Isaiah actually describing something that is going to happen with creation? It's, this is a literal reading. You will see a lion lie down or a wolf lie down with a lamb. And maybe. Or is it figurative? He's just using hostile pairs to say when Jesus finally comes back, all hostile pairings will be broken down. And he's just using the language of these animals. I would lean lightly towards the figurative language and would add that all hostile pairings are supposed to begin the breakdown inside the church today. So when the world looks at the church, they say, those two groups of people, they should be hostile to each other, but they're not. What, what causes them to get together? And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, you, you are all one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free. See, all these pairings that could be hostile to each other when they get inside the church because they serve one Savior, it begins to break down. And the world looks at us and goes, wow, that's amazing. All this diversity in the church, and yet all this unity in the church. What has caused that? It causes people to look at Christ. Well, a lot more could be said about that. Let me finish here with the final point, the call for all people to come to Christ. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who shall stand as a signal. Now, think. How is Jesus going to stand as a signal? A signal for all peoples. All nations are going to inquire of him. And I love this last part. When you find him, what do you find? Rest. Real rest. It's not a fast car. And notice here, very important to notice, the shoot has turned into what? The root. In that day, not the shoot of Jesse, but the root of Jesse. Hmm. If I look back in chapter 11, verse 1, it says the shoot. Now I'm talking about the root. So this is an unusual king. He's not only the offspring of David, he's also the source of David. Now who could this be? Who could be a child that was born and a son that was given? Who could be a man and God? Who could be the person that when the Pharisees try to stump Jesus, he turns it back on him say, saying, how is it that, Jesus, that David says, I'm serving the Lord who also made me? And the Pharisees, silence. Why? 
They couldn't see the God-man. They couldn't see this person coming into the world. He is the shoot and he's the root. And Jesus says it in case you don't, you're confused about it. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, I am the root and the offspring of David. Second thing to notice here is that his entrance into the world is like a, a signal or a banner or a flag. You think about a, a, a football team and they like to have their flag and everybody rallies to the flag or a country that has a flag and everybody's rallying to the, this flag. He's going to be a signal. He's going to be a, a flag. And to this flag, all nations can come and find rest. John twelve thirty two. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Here's the signal. Hey, it doesn't look like a fast car. So, so you and I, closing here, you and I are living within Isaiah's mountain range. We're, we're well past some of the mountains. The shoot of Jesse, the, the birth of Christ, we're well past that by 2,100 years. And now we're living in this space, this valley that's in between, and we know there's at least one more mountain on the horizon, the second coming, and it's hard to say how close that final mountain may be. Now, I talk to people a lot who think because of the secular darkness that seems to be devouring our own culture, think that we're living in the final days. Maybe. I don't know. What I do know is that the last 100 years has been the greatest expansion of Christianity on the planet in any 100-year period. Let me give you one example. China, the number of Protestants in China in 1900, 100,000. 50 years later, 800,000. Today, 50 million. It shouldn't be breaking news that America's spiritual temperature is not the gauge God is looking at trying to decide when he's going to come back. He's not up there going, oh, golly, America, oh, man, i got to come back because America's going in darkness. We could go dark like Europe, and the gospel could be exploding around the world. Millions of people coming to Christ, and we would never want to hold that back. We would want to hold on to our candle, even if it's a dark time, and say to America and to the nations, we have refused to get in a fast car. We're trusting in this signal. He's going to bring us home. Let's pray. Lord, more, more was left unsaid than said. But we look at these words from Isaiah that are 2,700, 2,800 years old. And we know their power for us today. And so I pray for especially those people who 
who live with great anxiety or fear of man, and they, they want to lean on things of the world to, to provide some kind of temporary comfort or hope that they would they would refuse that and, and trust, they would wait, wait on you, as the psalmist said in Psalm 27. I will, I will wait on the Lord. For anyone here who has gotten in a fast car and feels like that's the way to go, before they get devoured, would you help them see the glory of the Savior who is a shoot? In this season, as we stare into a manger with a baby, may we return and come home. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.